0: Hopefully, you all have your Bible. If you do, please open it up to the second chapter, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. It's very easy to find. Just flip to the very end of your Bible, and you found the book of Revelation there. If you see the maps, you've gone too far, just turn back a little bit. Now, if you remember from last time, we are beginning a section now that is part of a whole, but if you want to think of it more narrowly, We can view it as a subsection of the whole letter. Chapters 2 and 3 are made up of seven sections. They're addressed to seven specific churches that existed at the time of John's exile at Patmos. But these messages have application to the church in every age, to the body of Christ at every time and every age. And we know that is the case in part because of the use of the number 7 here in the text. The number seven is used in Revelation to convey the idea of completeness or totality. And the message of the church to Ephesus, which we're going to read here in just a moment, is very clear. It's obviously applicable to the church in every age. That is, good works are good and they're important, God bless you, but not at the expense of forgetting the gospel and its benefits, its comforts, and its encouragements. Okay? This is the the specific passage that we're looking at is addressed specifically to the church, to Ephesus, but it has application, God bless you again, to the church in every time and in every age. And again, the primary thrust of this message is that good works are important and even necessary in a sense, but not at the expense of forgetting the gospel, its benefits, its comforts, its encouragement. So this um is the first of seven different sections of seven smaller sections within chapters two and three. But Let's take a time now to read it. And then after we read it, we'll pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. So the reading of the word of God, beginning at verse one in chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for preserving your word for us that we may be edified and convicted. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of truths tonight that impact our life, Lord, cause us to have understanding and help us to have our eyes set upon Christ and the benefits that he has given to us in going to the cross for us and in living for us and taking the punishment that we deserve there while he was on the cross and then also being risen for our justification. May you be exalted, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So last uh, week, we covered what is meant by the angel of the church, which is how this passage starts out. You can listen to that online or if you missed it last week or if you want to ask me later, go ahead and we could deal with that. But note again what comes after that in verse 1. This is the, this is, or these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. And we know that is in re- reference to the end of chapter 1. And that was the description of the son of man there in chapter one, the son of man in all his glory. The son of man is a title for the Messiah. It's just simply referring to Jesus. When the end of chapter one talks about Jesus holding these seven stars in his right hand, walking among the seven lampstands. And so the son of man, the second person, the triune Godhead is Jesus. And this is talking about a message from him. There is one God. This one God eternally exists as three equal persons, and Jesus, the second person of this Godhead, holds the elders of the church in His hand, and He walks among the church. Again, we kind of went over that last week a little bit. But in every message to the, to these seven churches, you'll see them all begin by pointing us back to something that was already revealed about the Son of God in chapter one. And the point in all of that is to say that say again that this is Christ's message. This is His message, and it's a message to His church in every age. And the point being here at this juncture in the church to Ephesus is to say that the Lord Jesus Christ knows the church, the whole church, whenever it is and and whatever period of time it exists in, he knows it perfectly and completely. The elders of it, you know, those who will have to give an account to Jesus for how they taught and how they shepherded. And I believe it's in James' epistle, he says that not many of you should become teachers The elders in the church will give an account to God for how they handled God's word and how they shepherded the flock, meaning how they protected God's people, how they encouraged God's people, how they instructed them in God's word. And so so these elders are in his hand. And then further, Jesus is with his church. He is among his church, walking among them, his spirit binding us all together. The, The church is the body of Christ. Colossians 1:18 says that Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. And here in the letter to the Colossians, at that point it's a reference to Christ's supremacy over the church, his position of priority and preeminence in comparison to the rest of the body. But he's a part of that body. He's the, he's the head of it as, as a true man, but also at the same time true God. He's the only one in the church that is like that. But even you know as part of we think of our own church, First family church, Jesus is part of this church. He's the head of it. And certainly, part of that supremacy would entail a knowledge of the rest of the body at a very intimate level. Better, of course, than the body knows itself. The Lord Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves individually or corporately here in this room. He is true God, the creator of everything that has been made. The children's catechism poses the question, does God know all things? And the answer that it gives is something that every Christian, whether young or old, should be able to confess. And that is this, that yes, nothing can be hidden from God. There is not a single thing that you have done, that I have done, that you have thought, that I have thought, that God does not know, that God does not see. Acts 124 says that God knows the hearts of all. And at that point, if you remember what's happening in Acts, in the opening chapter there, the apostles are praying and and they're seeking to install a 12th apostle after Judas's betrayal. And so in in 124, they're praying, they're saying, well, God, you know the hearts of all as they're trying to instill this replacement apostle. And of course, even uh, Judas's betrayal was something that Jesus knew about. Do you remember that? In the upper room, before the Lord's Supper was instituted, and they were just eating the Passover meal together, Jesus said that it would be him who he gave the bread to that would betray him. And it's weird because it's like Peter asked this question. It's weird from us like reading it after it happened because one of the apostles, I think it was Peter, asked this question, or it was John who asked the question. And then Jesus says, oh, it's him who I give this piece of bread to after that. And he gives it to Judas. And then like nobody nobody does anything everything just keeps going on like normal and that's either because god was sovereignly orchestrating things to happen in that regard so that god's plan of you know the the eventual betrayal and then death of jesus would happen as according to god's plan or it was just written in that way so that we would understand what happened after after the fact but nevertheless jesus knew who was going to betray him that it was going to be jesus John first John 320 says it plainly God knows everything. That's what first John 320 says. Now, for the unbeliever, for the person who does not trust Christ for salvation, this reality should be something that causes them to take notice. It's not something that really that I think an unbeliever can really bear under the fact that God knows everything about you, that Jesus knows everything about you, he knows even what you're thinking. And so for many people who are lost in their sins, it simply becomes easier for them to say, well, oh, there is no God at all. They land at atheism because it's easier than dealing with the reality of a God who created them, who holds them to his own holy standard. And believers also need to take note of this reality. In our sinfulness and our laziness, we tend to forget it, I think. I mean, could you carry on in a sinful activity at the time, if you're realizing that God was fully aware of how you were acting. I don't know how exactly we do it. Nevertheless, I know we do it. We still sin as Christians. Somehow our flesh hides from us the realities that the gospel has made clear to us in those moments. But the reality is, is that Jesus is with his people in a special way. A unique and loving way he's walking among these lampstands as we read that in a way that he's not with the rest of creation, and that knowledge he has of us is completely perfect, but we shouldn't think of him then as some judge we need to hide from, like the person who doesn't have faith does. Joel Beakey compares Christ's presence and perfect knowledge of his church to that of a gardener who walks among his flower beds. In other words, he's want to say that, that he's appreciating the rich colors and textures and growth that he was essential in orchestrating. In other words, Jesus isn't among us with his perfect knowledge always going about to inspect us and find faults. Uh, he loves his body, and he's concerned about it. And so he's among us as one who loves us and is concerned about us. But since we live in a fallen world, and since we struggle against the flesh, against the world, against the devil, he sometimes discovers things that need pruning, if we're to stay with this gardener analogy at least. And so Jesus comes to us as our Savior, who has laid down his life for us, whose own blood was shed for us. He who had no transgression against the law of God, yet because he was going to be a living and true member of the body, the church body, he willing, willingly took upon himself the punishment that breaking God's law requires. He satisfies it. And then in doing so, he defeats death on the behalf of those who were chosen in him. And he unites us in time through the faith that he gives to us. So he knows us intimately and lovingly, not to find fault in us, because we have many faults. But he reveals these things to us in his time to sanctify us, to conform us to Christ, to preserve us and... And increase our faith through giving us more grace by pointing these things out so that we can change and be, again, more conformed uh, to him, more sanctified, in other words. And if he didn't do this, our sins would destroy us. It would be evidence even that we never truly belonged to him and that we were not a part of his body, actually, if that was the case. As the letter to Hebrews says, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, a father who loves his son disciplines him. If Jesus didn't come with correction to us from time to time, then if he just let us wander in our sins, would could we say he really loved us? We couldn't. And so here he is offering in this letter both encouragement and correction. So notice what Jesus says here. He knows his church. Look at verse 2. He knows their works. Remember, he has eyes like a flame of fire, we read in 1.14. Nothing is hidden from them. Further, if you remember what Ephesians 2 proclaims, hopefully, this is after the Apostle Paul affirms that we are saved by God alone through his plan. But there we learn that God also prepared good works for us to do beforehand in Ephesians 2.10. He prepared these good works for us in Christ that we should walk in them. And so he says here in Ephesians, or excuse me, Revelation 2, I know your works. He knows their toil and their patient endurance. That's interesting, I think. Living the normal Christian life, which of course includes good works, right? Hopefully, we could all agree that the normal Christian life includes good works. It also entails then an element of toil and patiently enduring. We desire to do right things because. God has changed us, he's made us alive, and he's united us to Christ, but that's not like a cakewalk because we live in a society who rejects God and needs the gospel for the first time. Make no mistake, we as Christians, we still need the gospel all the time. We continually need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of its comforts, its blessings, its encouragements, and delights. And again, I will get to this, but I think the reason while there is a critique to the specific congregation, is because they've neglected that, and all those things are found in the person of Christ, but the people in our community, in our society, who are not resting in Christ, they need that gospel, gospel testimony in their life for the first time, uh, for it to take root, for it to come with power. And apart from that, uh, our living among them will have tension. It will be in an existence in which you'll have to display a patient endurance. You know what it means to endure, right? To endure, you you're, ha- it's, you're having to deal with something that's not easy. You're you're pushing through. You're you're. That's a good way of thinking of it. You're enduring. You're having something come against you. But like, if you've ever tried to go for a jog, maybe in in windy weather. I've never had to do a sandstorm. We live in Antioch. (laughs) Um, But I I hate running in the wind. It's the worst. But you have to patiently endure it. Um, I'd rather, you know, have a still day so there's not that resistance. But that's a way to think of it, actually, is that there's resistance against you and you have to endure against that. And so let me try to put this plainly to you. If you're living among people who don't love the Savior that you claim to love, and there's no tension there, then you should ask yourself, am, am I bearing the testimony of Christ before them? Because the world doesn't have fellowship with Christ and neither, neither does Christ have fellowship with the world. Why is it not something, why do so many Christians simply live at ease in the world with you know just doing the same types of things that people in the world do? Well, it's, it could be because they're not actually Christian, could be because they are christian and they're just not simply living as a christian among them because if you were to live as a christian among a lost world well there would be a tension there because the world and christ don't have fellowship together they don't get along there's they're not equally yoked now specifically the lord jesus is praising the church in ephesus here for their works remember they're having to impatiently it's not easy they're facing opposition for their stance but they're being praised for it. And what is it? Continued on in verse 2. Is that they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found to be false. That's what we read. The apostle Paul warned the church in Ephesus about this in Acts 20. You might remember there he said that fierce wolves towards the end of his time in Ephesus. And he says to them, um, amongst tears after telling them that he declared the whole counsel of God to them, that fierce wolves would come in among the flock and that they wouldn't spare them, the flock being the church, the people who were part of the covenant community. And that came true, of course, because we're reading about how they dealt with it here in Revelation 2. In other words, there were people professing to be Christian in Ephesus, people who were professing to be of importance, people who were proclaiming to have the teachings of Christ, but in fact their teaching was contrary to what Christ taught. They were in fact fierce wolves, false teachers. We don't have time to consider all the specifics of what is meant to be a false apostle or a false teacher that we read about here in Revelation 2, but you can look at Second Corinthians on your own time if you, if you make time for that. Second Corinthians, Paul deals with false apostles at length in the second letter to the Corinthian church, um, you want to learn how to faithfully engage that topic, that'd be a good place to start. But essentially, think of what an apostle does. An apostle is one who teaches and has authority. Mind you, of course, there are churches and denominations, and even some that would recognize as Christian cults today, such as like Mormonism, that claim to have apostles today. So this is a relevant thing to be thinking of, even in that um, light. And if you make this claim that you're an apostle, and you're not really an apostle as defined by what the scriptures say, then you're what Jesus says you are here, right? Which is what? Evil. Again, not trying to get into details of what is meant by a false apostle here for the sake of time, but the point being made here in our text is that this church was being praised for doing what is right, and that is for not receiving these people who claim to be apostles, yet they were not. There were people in the Ephesians, the city of Ephesus who had infiltrated the, the church there who claimed to be apostles, yet they were not. They were, in fact, evil, and the Christians among the congregation, most of them didn't buy it, is what we are gathered in this. They didn't condone false teaching among them, but they tested those who claimed to be apostles and they rejected them. So two things, right? They put teaching and teachers to a test, and then when they didn't pass that test, they rejected them. They just didn't make it seem like it was, oh, it's not a big deal, but they rejected them. And the Lord praises them for this. This is a good thing for us as a church to do then, right? We as a body of Christ aren't supposed to shut off our brains when someone says they're a Christian, and then they espouse to us some sort of doctrine and teaching. That's not commendable to do that. What it is, is testing what people teach by the word of God. Turn with me to Acts 17. Here in Acts 17, the the, the church is growing. The kingdom of God is growing. The great commission is being obeyed. And an apostle and an evangelist are sent to a region called Berea. Acts 17, 10 through 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agita- agitating and stirring up the crowds. So here in Acts 17, the saints in Berea are called noble because they didn't only receive the word of God with eagerness, but they also examined the scriptures to see if these things were true. Uh, there, And this is so important for, really for us to grasp in our time when Christianity is legal or when there's not there's not really any um, well there's no re- religion that is unable to be practiced that unless it is causing harm to people, then the government would step in and shut that down, but we allow for religious religious freedom here in the United States, and so you can have all s- well, and it is harming people. That's a good point. Yet it's not harming people physically in the sense that the government has to come in and shut it down. And so you have so many things that pass off as Christianity today that look nothing like biblical Christianity. And you have some churches that, that gather crowds of 20,000 per weekend. You have large conferences that might gather, you know, even many more thousands than that. But what they're teaching, and people are receiving with gladness. They're singing songs together. The name of Christ is being mentioned and praised. But what they're teaching, the substance of what they're teaching, is not what the scriptures teach. And so people are receiving it with eagerness, but yet they're not doing what these Bereans did, and they're not examining what was said and comparing it to scripture. We are not as Christians expected to just believe whatever someone says when they say they are Christian. The uh, the apostle Paul even warned the saints in Galatia that if an angel from heaven professed a different gospel that they were even to be accursed. Everything needs to be tested against the word of God. After all, the passage that we're considering even tonight begins by saying the words of him who holds seven stars, remember? The Word of God is the standard by which we compare any teaching to. Return to me uh, turn with me to First John four. So go back towards revelation. First John is very close to it. Uh, the passage here is de- dealing with a specific text of Orthodoxy. But the method of testing is the same across the board. Anyways, so first John four 1 through three, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out to you into the world. But this you know by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. So there you have it again. Christians are to test teachings, to test the spirits, as John puts it here. Do teachers have a spirit that is with Christ or one that is opposed to Christ? And doing so is not easy. It takes careful study. You have to go back to the word of God. Further, it's not going to make you adored by some people, uh, people who are teaching falsely. It'll cause you to be their enemies. But those would also be the enemies of Christ, right? So wouldn't you rather be on Christ's side anyways? Again, it's not easy. Note verse 3. In back in Revelation chapter 2. So let's turn back over there. It should be a page or two over. Note what verse 3 says. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. We do it not for our own sake, brothers and sisters. We do it for the sake of Jesus' name because we care about his glory. We are Christians here tonight. We care about the glory of Christ. We do it out of love for him who first loved us. The reason we stand against false teaching, the reason we speak out against it, the reason we don't condone it, the reason that we don't bear with those who are evil, as John puts it here in Revelation chapter 2, is because of our desire to uphold the name of Christ, which means so much to us. John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. It's not easy to take a stand for Christ, but it's the right thing to do. And by God's grace, we're we're kept through it. And at this point in verse 4, he introduces a critique. But before we consider that, look down to verse 6 in Revelation chapter 2. there's another thing to commend or praise them for. And it's similar to what he has already mentioned in verses two to three. This church in Ephesus, they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which he, Jesus, also hates. We aren't told specifically what this work is here at this point. We could probably guess just based off of knowing what God hates, of course. But Irenaeus, who was a a teacher in the early church, he was born around 120 AD, so He was born probably 30 years after John was in prison here at Patmos. So a little bit later, he wrote a book, a well-known book called Against Heresies. And he wrote about the heresy of the Nicolaitans. Probably, likely, it's the same issue that's being mentioned here, but we don't know for certain. Nevertheless, he says that the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas. And this is actually a person who was mentioned back in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was one of the original deacons. So this man, Nicholas, who was an early deacon in the church, probably he at some point abandoned the true faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And he gained a following, and he you know took others with him in his heresy. And it seems like this perversion of Christianity was defined by immorality and idolatry. And certainly, even those, though those things aren't specifically mentioned here, I mean, we know that those are things that the Lord hates. right? So it very well could be. That um, this specific group of Galatians. nevertheless, there are things to be commended here in this body of believers. They are a church, a congregation that appears to value discernment and doctrinal faithfulness that leads to a distinctly Christian life in step with the law of God, and they're to be praised for it. It's good that they're this way. He's been saying that it's good that you are discerning. It's good that you are for doctrinal fidelity. These are things that you should aspire towards as a church um, in in any age. But there's also a danger to be aware of, even when you have so many things right. And we read about that in verse 4 and 5. And there is something to that, I think, as well. Something in the Spirit's design in, in closing this critique In between two praises, I think, uh, and commending this congregation on the front and the back when he's delivering this critique at the same time should maybe inspire us to to have that same sort of mindset if we're having to deal with a critique with people in the church. You know, if you're looking to correct somebody and they're a true brother or sister in the faith, it's probably a good idea to also show them ways in which you are in step with them ways in which they are right, ways in which they are glorifying Christ. And then there's an element of graciousness with there in that. And the understanding then is that this critique, this element that needs to be critiqued, no matter how serious it is, is perhaps a blind spot and not everything is wrong if that's the case. So it's good to gently correct another brother and sister and to not neglect praise when it's due. But that's not to distract from the seriousness of the critique And it's serious, isn't it? This is a serious critique. This is Jesus saying, I have this against you. If the Lord Jesus has something against us, we would need to take that very seriously, wouldn't we? We should try to remedy that that right away. And look at what he says at verse four. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. Love Now, what is that? And I, I think of it especially in light of the things that they were praised for in this congregation. A congregation, again, that is discerning and is doctrinally sound against false teachers. Yet, they've abandoned their first love. It doesn't sound like it's something that they're aware of, but it's just something that has happened because their focus has been misplaced. And so they've left their first love. They haven't lost it, but it's as if they have just, they've left it, they've abandoned it. And it's possible then for a church to be concerned about doing right things that it forgets why, at least in practice, as to why it should be doing those right things. It's possible for a church to be doing right things and in doing those right things to forget the reason as to why they're doing those right things. To maybe be doing those right things for a misplaced reason even. <clears throat> that love for Christ, because of who He is and what He has done, takes a back seat to be focused on good works. But that must never be the case, friends. John Owen says that some leave their first love of Christ because they think that abiding in Christ is, and quote, a plant that needs neither watering, manuring, you know, fertilizing, nor pruning but that which will thrive alone of itself. The point is, that's not the case. If we approach our relationship with Christ like that, as if we can just move beyond the gospel and f- focus on the law and then doing what's right, we, we will begin to do what's right from the wrong place. Joel Beakey says that Christians need to understand that our love for Christ needs continual nurture and replenishment. We can't just put it on the back burner, you guys. We can't just contemplate it private. Um, We can't just let it be something that impacts us only at the beginning of our relationship with God and then neglect it. It should be something that we contemplate privately early in the morning and late in the day. It should be the focus of why we gather on the Lord's Day especially, and even in midweek services like this, when we're to have Christ preached. But what does that mean, to have Christ preached? It's not simply to hear a sermon about Jesus and the things he he has done or the interactions he had, or even better, it's not just to simply hear about his thoughts on the law. What it does mean to have Christ preached is to have the churches, which is the people of the church, is to have our joy and our hope and, and our rest all in Christ, in him who purchased salvation for us, in him who was bound so that we can be set free, we, because of the life of Christ and the cross of Christ, have been restored unto God and have been forgiven. We don't have to meet a standard to be accepted by God. Christ has met that standard for us. He has done it all from start to finish. And we, we need to always remember this so that we don't confuse law and gospel, so that we don't unconsciously try to use the law as a means of being right before God so that we don't unconsciously try to do our good works so as to be accepted before God. We need to remember our first love always, that Christ has made us right before God. The only hope that we have for not being confused in this way is to have our focus and our mind continually set upon what Jesus has done for us. That's the only way we can be right with God Almighty. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Now, consider verse 5. I'm still make my case here. He, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And let's stop for there for now. That's good advice, isn't it? I mean, of course it is. It's from Jesus himself. But remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you had at first. Well, what was it like? for those of you who are in this room who are Christian, what was it like for you when you first became a Christian? I suppose it's different for some of us in different regards because we have different backgrounds, depending on whatever the Lord's sovereign plan was in your life. I mean, depending on if you received Christ while being born into a Christian family, or perhaps, you know, that's not the case. Perhaps you indulged in a life of immorality or maybe a life of indifference to what the Bible said or what was taught at church. Those things look different for different people, or even consider examples in the Word. You have Matthew the Levite, who was a tax collector, and the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians. So there's different circumstances. But one thing would be similar across all who are saved and experience the transforming love of God, and that is at the moment of your conversion, at the moment of your real of your salvation, or at least when, you're sal- when you became aware of salvation in your life, you had a a real awareness of sin in your life a real awareness of your offending of god and your immediate need at that point was to look to christ and to follow him no matter what circumstances existed in your life before that prior to your salvation at the moment when you were converted you knew that you needed forgiveness and forgiveness could only come through christ jesus There's a song actually that I'm reminded of which captures this possibility that believers have to forget their first love. I'm not going to sing it. I will just recite it. We don't sing it anymore here at church because the author of the song has become a liberal and endorses a version of Christianity that is contrary to what scriptures teach. But nevertheless, these lyrics of the song are good. Um, And this is what the lyrics say. May I never lose the wonder the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. is Vicky Beeching. I'll help you. You don't have to look it up. Uh, the love described in that song, a love that just destroys your pride and humbles you, before God as you realize that God has loved you and sent his only begotten son to the cross to pay a penalty that would destroy you. We're to never put those things behind us or in a secondary position, friend. They are of first importance. We must always come back to them in our Christian life. That's what we're supposed to do primarily when we gather at the church on the Lord's Day, is to be reminded of what Jesus did for us there at the cross. Because what When we know what has happened there that fuels us and gives us the right desires to do everything else to do the discerning acts that the church in ephesus did to to be careful about having doctrinal distinctions like the church in ephesus did it should all flow out of what jesus did for us there at the cross but if you forget that first love and then you start thinking that your good works and your righteous deeds are what make you right before god well then you're in trouble and you're in danger of what Jesus goes on to say in verse 5. We'll get to that in just a moment. If we make the mistake of abandoning that first love, what do we do? Well, we remember what it is first and to be aware of um, our, this need that we have for Christ by meditating on the gospel and its application to you. Excuse me. And then we also repent. That's the instruction that we have in verse 5. Remember what Christ has done for you and repent of neglecting that love, which means, of course, simply to stop neglecting that love, to let that love, that love alone, be the motivation for any and all other good works. We're running short on time tonight, but Joel Beakey has a, in his commentary, he has a good description of what repentance looks like, about what evangelical repentance looks like. Let me just give you the four categories for the sake of time that he points out, because it's good. What does repentance actually look like? What does evangelical repentance, what is it made of? We sometimes say it's a 180-degree turn. Let's be more precise. Um, Number one, it grieves over and hates sin. There's a continual aspect to it in that. It, It confesses the specific sin. It's not just a general repentance over all sin. I mean, it's that, but it's also of specific sin. It forsakes sin. In other words, an act of the will. It's not just something that you say in your mind but it's a real choice that you're making. I'm going to choose to not get angry like that anymore or whatever it is the sin is. And then fourthly, a repentance also entails with it a cry for mercy. <laughs> Good timing. A cry for mercy because that's what we that's what we need in that act. And it's a serious issue because look at what happens if this warning is not heeded. Christ will remove the lampstand from its place if there's no repentance. Again, it's it's true that believers cannot lose their salvation, but warnings like this serve to humble true believers and they bring us to repentance. This is reminiscent not only from the end of chapter one, but also from Israel in Zechariah four two, where he talks about a lampstand, the church being a lampstand. Um, Israel was supposed to be a lampstand to the world, but they failed in that regard. They didn't cling to God through the gospel and the covenant made with Israel was terminated in favor of the new covenant. And, A local church has a similar responsibility. If a church will abandon the gospel, well, Christ will remove that lampstand, as it were. He's not going to be lovingly and intimately around a group that isn't united to him through faith, of course. So in other words, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. And in that, continual looking to Christ and resting in him, in his gospel promises and his comforts. Never will we find joy and hope if we are looking at our own performance but we will always find joy and hope and peace when we are repentant and looking to Christ who earned those things for us. Now, verse seven is where this passage ends. And there's a phrase here that will be repeated six more times in chapters two and three. So maybe we'll spend more time on it later. But it's the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. If you're familiar with the Bible, that should be a familiar phrase as well. It's referencing more than simply audible sound, but it's talking about believing true true believing right and note also it's to the churches not just to the church in ephesus it's more to just them though they are the example here but look at the promise at the end here what he's saying is that when the gospel sustains us we have this promise when we conquer through remembering the gospel because really it is jesus who has conquered for us and we reap his benefits we are promised at that point To be able to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does that remind you of, you guys? The tree of life, the paradise of God. The garden, Eden, yeah. In Genesis, we read about it and we're going to see it again at the end of Revelation. But that's the point here. When we overcome through Christ, that which was lost in the garden through Adam is restored. The tree of life is symbolic of our communion with God for all eternity. And because of what Christ has done, that which was ruined is restored. That which we gave away by willingly sitting ourselves, Christ wins back for us at the cost of his blood and body. This life that we now live, as we wait for Christ's second coming, we're supposed to take it up with good works. We are praised by God for doing so even. We bring him glory in it. And we must never forget that it is because of Christ and Him alone that we are right with God. We must never lose sight of our love for Him because of who He is and what He has done. Because at the end of this age, we have the promise that we will be with God forever in His paradise. We can be sure of that promise because it rests purely on what Jesus has done, not on our good works. We should do good works, but the benefits from the gospel that we have they come to us in that which was our first love with God when we realize that we were miserable sinners who have no hope of saving ourselves or being restored to God by our own actions but only through what Jesus Christ has done so we can never forget that friends because we we rest we have true rest and true peace and true joy in knowing what Jesus has done and from that we should let our good works flow so let's pray and then we'll address any questions after that Father in heaven, it's humbling to even think of the reality that you who are God and who knows all things, who who never has to learn anything, would even use your own words to praise your people for the things that they do, knowing even Lord God, that we couldn't do any good and right thing apart from the grace that you have given to us. So we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to increase in good works, so that you would be pleased with us. It is a wonderful thought to think that that you, the creator of all things, could be pleased with us. And we know ultimately that you could only be pleased with us because of what Jesus has done for us first. So help us to never forget the gospel, Lord. Help us to never think that we have to maintain a right standing with you uh, through our good works. Uh, Help us, Lord, to know that our justification is full and sure because of what Jesus has done. And then let us abound in good works from that knowledge, all for your glory's sake. Help us, God, to be holy for you are holy and help us to treat each other with love and respect so that you would be glorified in that as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, any questions or anything? Okay.